0: This episode of the Swell Pod is brought to you in partnership with Kiln. Kiln provides flex office space for teams and individuals. Their all inclusive set of amenities helps startups, creatives, and entrepreneurs alike get work done. Learn more about Kiln at kiln.co.
1: What does it take to create something that never existed before? What does it take to challenge the status quo? And what does it take to change the world? This is the Swell Podcast. We're passionate about the seed of an idea and how it swells into a movement. Take a journey with us as we seek the answers to those three questions through the stories of thought leaders, world builders, game changers, disruptors, and other pleasantly rebellious humans who ventured into the unknown on a personal journey to do something novel, innovative, creative, and disruptive. So Josh, who do we have today?
0: Yeah, so today's episode, Spencer, Uh, We chat with Doctor Peter Lovett, a dance psychologist and author who sometimes goes by the name Doctor Dance. He created a dance psychology lab at the University of uh, You're going to have to help me with that University of Hertfordshire. Is that right? Hertfordshire, yeah. Hertfordshire, where his studies investigated the psychological effects of movement. Peter's academic and teaching career extends from Cambridge University to the Royal Ballet School. He even shared keynote dancing sessions with Barack Obama and Oprah Winfrey. I we was do- there, by the way.
1: <laughs> I was there. I was there next to Oprah Winfrey, like five meters from her. Uh, and he was awesome. Doctors, Dr. Lover. Sorry, carry on, Josh. Tell us what we're going to dive into. Well, I
0: want to hear more about the Oprah Winfrey thing. I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> No, yeah, we dive into his uh, experience about not being able to read or write until he was an adult, his passion and determination to study dance, and how it can be used to, ch- to challenge the status quo at home and at work. Yeah, I don't know what stood out to you, though, Spencer, in this episode.
1: Oh, uh, just, it's just his story, like, uh, just even from a personal perspective, like, relating mm-hmm. to struggling with learning early days in, in your life, and of course, for him, right up until 20, not being able to read and write. But yet, then he, he found a way. His passion, his strength, and specifically his passion in dance allowed him to learn um, and, and overcome the challenges of re- re- reading and writing and then go on to do masters and a doctorate and, and, and so many things with, with with this unique skill and passion that he had. And, and, and you know, he covers some of that, uh, but that kind of stands out from from reading his book and uh, m- m- having met him.
0: Yeah, it was a great conversation. I just remember, you know, um, just uh, unbelievable energy. You know, he's just got such an infectious kind of energy. You just want to be around him. If you are around him, you're probably going to be smiling the entire time or laughing the entire time. Super awesome attitude. Um, and, yeah, as you can imagine, somebody who champions dance with, with, within the workplace and personally, like, yeah, he's going to be awesome. So, yeah, we Hang hope you guys... You. Oh, yeah, Je- yeah, Josh, yeah.
1: I've danced with you. You've got some good dance moves. I
0: don't have any good dance moves. That's funny, though. I mean, oh, my goodness. We're going to have, at some point, you know, the whole windmill kind of break dancing discussion. I think we actually talk about that in some of our episodes, but <laughs> you've got you've got that B-boy kind of history to you, right?
1: yeah yeah well uh, yeah i I do but what i find fun about doctors love it and this is gonna sound probably terrible but like when he's on the stage you don't you don't assume he can dance really well and that's probably a judgment like totally incorrect judgment Mm. you just kind of think how is he gonna like and of course he can dance but it actually makes you smile for some reason like when when most people dance it doesn't make you necessarily smile and Anyway, uh, let's let's. I think we should let people, you know, listen to this episode. Hey, guys, enjoy this session and read his book. It's an awesome read. Absolutely, or a brilliant read.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thanks, everybody.
1: That's good stuff. Well, um, thank you for joining this the swell pod this morning, uh, Doctor Peter Lovett. Uh, we are really excited to have you uh, here today. Well, great. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really
2: pleased to be here.
1: You know, I've read read your book, and and just I'm just I don't know. It's made me think about a lot of things to do with my childhood, and the things that relate to to how much actually dance brings me joy. But guess what? I don't do a lot of it anymore. Um, and why is that? You know, uh, as a child, I I you know I was in plays and 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 dance routines. In fact. We just interviewed a uh, doctor, Doctor Matthew Levitt, uh, disrupting pathology, and someone sent me a photo of him and I when we were eleven years old, dancing in a dance festival in our church, um, doing Morris dancing wow. and and sixties dancing, and and it, it just I, I literally had forgotten how much dance really did um, bring me a lot of happiness, whether it was uh, you know going to church discos or or in a break break club or break dancing club, you know, in the 80s. And so, yeah, I'm feeling all sorts of different feelings right now. I'm thinking, why don't I do more of that? Uh, And uh, But I'd like to ask you really a little bit about your past and and let our listeners learn a little bit about why dance is so
2: important to you and where it really began. Dance for me is probably the most important act that I do. And it's the time when I feel the most me, you know, which might sound bizarre, but when I'm dancing, everything changes. You know, it, I feel cognitively, I feel different. I feel emotionally different. I feel connected to people on a different way. And my body just feels alive. You know, yesterday, I'd been working all day long and I was working at the desk all day and I had loads of deadlines and things I had to do yesterday. And it got to 4, 4.30 in the afternoon. And I thought, I need to dance, but I, I haven't got time to dance. And I, my body was there. And um, so at 5 o'clock, I thought, no, I'm going to dance. This is it. I'm, I need to go and dance. And I really wasn't feeling it at all. And I went into the studio and put the music on and started moving. And within 30 seconds, my body just changed. Everything transformed in me. And I go, of course, of course, this is why I dance. And my body felt different everything felt my mood, everything felt completely different. And um, when I'm in that state, I can never understand. Well, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I can be in all kinds of other states, and I don't feel my optimum self. But when I'm in that state, I do feel my optimum self. And that really helps in lots of areas of my life. This has been like all my life, you know, like you. I used to dance as a child, and I loved dancing in doing country dancing, doing all kinds of different dancing. I just loved it. And in my teenage years, I, you know, my parents' house, my bedroom, my parents' house had a big window in it, and at night, when it was dark outside, I could put the lights on inside, and it would suddenly be a massive mirror. And. <laughs> I would play this groovy disco music and I'd be grooving away in front of this giant mirror. And of course we lived on a quite a big road and everyone could see me outside. I I couldn't see them of course. And I must've looked ridiculous grooving away. They couldn't hear the music. But for me, it was just wonderful. I loved that experience. And uh, you know, through my teenage years, I found myself in a different way through movement uh, in all kinds of ways, which I'll talk about later. And then, Again, like you, I went through a period where I didn't dance. You know, I was too busy being professional to, you know, doing what I was doing. I was doing stuff. And, um, yeah, I got to this point. I'd I'd had a couple of years where I hadn't really danced. I'd given up being a professional dancer. And, um, you know, I'd done all the normal things. So I'd been a professional dancer for years. And then I stopped that to go to university to study psychology. And I did my first degree, then my master's degree, then my PhD. And then I was at Cambridge University then. And I'd always fancied, so I was a psychologist and an academic, as I loved. And I thought, oh, I know, I'm going to become a barrister. I'm going to become a lawyer first and then become a barrister. That was my, I thought, right, this is what I'm going to do. So I then enrolled at law school. And while I was working at Cambridge University, I enrolled at law school then to, to train as a, as a, as a lawyer. <laughs> Ridiculous. And I really loved all the academic side of it. I loved the reading and I loved the research. I loved all of that, that stuff, learning about different laws. And I, well, I enjoyed it thoroughly. And, um, and then one day I was, you know, when you become a lawyer in the UK, there's a certain uniform that you have to wear, right? There's certain clothes you have to wear, certain shirts with cufflinks, certain chambers. If you want to go to certain chambers, you need to look a certain way. And one Saturday morning, I went off to, to buy the uniform to become a barrister, They're that kind of, you know, that suit and tie and shirts and everything else. And I walked past my old dance studio, and I hadn't been to that dance studio in the West End for years and years. And, and so I thought, oh, oh. And so I went off and I bought some, some clothes. I, I bought some, you know, tracksuit bottoms and a T-shirt. And I went into the studio, and I just went, I enrolled in a class there and then just, just to do a one-hour jazz class and the teacher said to me at the beginning, she said, well, have you done, you've got much dance experience? And I said, oh, you know, a bit, but no, not really. No, I haven't danced. I'm not a dancer. I haven't danced to it. No, 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 no. And, um, and in the middle of that class, the emotions just came to the surface. And at the end of the class, the teacher said, you have danced. You are a dancer, aren't you? And, oh, my word. I left there and I was just in tears. I was crying like an idiot. And... Um, that's where I belonged and I, I didn't buy the uniform to become a barrister and I gave up law school and I thought no I, I might be a, a an adult a male adult but I'm gonna dance and that's what I that's what I do that's what I love and I wanted to find a way in my professional career where I could then combine to use that love of dance in my professional career rather than having it as something separate on the side and it was all part of that that I then decided to combine my passion for dance and my professional academic qualifications in psychology and to join those two things together with a passion and um, and and find my purpose. And that that's what I did. That's amazing. I, I
1: love that connection, you know, and, and even just that, moment you <laughs> passed the dance studio you know maybe what would have happened if you hadn't passed the dance studio you know um yeah. but those emotions led you to 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 kind of you know go in a different direction and, and actually eventually find uh you know mixing those two things together right dance and 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 also your your uh your expertise in psychology. I want to take you back to, to your childhood, if I can, if I'm allowed. Um, your story, I'd love to hear about, I mean, I don't know how dance came into your life, you know, in a school sense, um, how it was introduced. Maybe that'd be interesting to find out like, but, but there's always a bully at school, um, often. And, I I wrote down in my notes, you know, kind of hid the hidden benefits of dance. Uh, Can you tell us that story about how how suddenly uh, the benefits of dance helped you uh, with a bully?
2: Well, it's funny. You started off by saying, uh, when did I find dance in the school? Dance doesn't find you. You are dance. The fact that your heart is beating and you're breathing and your brain is functioning. You are dance. We are dance. Mm -hmm. We are born dance. We eventually come out of dance but we are born with, with, with that sense. It's that natural mm. groove and rhythm that's inside all of us. So that's where I felt great. I went to this secondary school, and uh, of course, it was fine. When, when you're a little kid, when you're seven, eight, nine, and you dance, nobody re- and you're a boy, nobody really takes much notice of you, right? You just do it, everyone does it, it's fine. When you get to 12, 13, 14, and you dance, then, and you're a boy, then in some instances you, you attract quite a lot of attention, and, um, and of course I attracted the attention of the school bully, who who hated the fact that I danced, and I would re- try to make my life a misery by by that, you know, by constantly insulting me, uh, you know, attributing aspects of my his his perce- his perception of my sexuality because I danced, and this would become a vehicle for him. You know, I go into a classroom and on the blackboard, there's usually blackboards with chalk, there'd be, you know, all kinds of insults about me written on the blackboard that he would write. And of course, the teacher would come into the class and have to wipe it all off the board. And so all the kids would see it and it would just be, you know, amplified and they'd be laughing. And th- but this happened on and on and on. I get shouted at. But Bear in mind, I belonged to the school dance group and I was the only boy in the school dance group. Which is fine when you're really young, but when you get to puberty, that then of course you look a bit different. And so I got taller. Um, We had to wear very, you know, we had to wear lycra, which is a kind of, you know, very close fitting material to our bodies. And uh, obviously I stood out. And when all the other boys were getting changed for football or rugby or sports, I'd be getting changed for dance. And I'd go off into the school hall and do dance, and they would go off into the school playing field and do football, you know. So it was obvious that I was different in that way, um, and I don't know why bullies have such a feeling about it. And then eventually, they, you know, it gets to the point when you're different, people want to conquer you in all kinds of ways. So the bully tries to conquer by name calling and controlling and trying to get you to stop doing the thing that you want to do with insults. And then eventually, it got to the physical act where he wanted to, you know, <laughs> he wanted to to fight me, which is ridiculous. I still think it's ridiculous. Um, and of course at the school I went to, it was part of the culture of that school. If somebody asked you out for a fight, it was planned. I mean, this was like on a Thursday and he said, right, Monday, lunchtime, Monday, lunchtime, we're going to meet at one o'clock behind this building. And I was like, wow, that's just on Thursday. He was announcing it. So we had five days of preparation to get to Monday lunchtime. And, um, I was a bit terrified. (laughs) So anyway, this bloke, came up to me in the school and then at one o'clock Monday we met where we had to meet and I, I guess he hadn't figured on the on the thing that dancers are really really fit and dancers are really strong because you're lifting people up and putting them on your shoulder you're, you're spending all day long exercising whereas he wasn't at all anyway he ran over to me and tried to fight me and he jumped on top of me to start with which is a silly thing to do and very fortuitously my hand went, went over and I managed to land some blows. And, um, and then that was it. That was the end of that situation. He was off then for the rest of the week. And um, I wasn't bothered ever again. But it's interesting that, you know, so that was my school experience of overcoming the bully. And I carried on. But there were times during that thing where I was going to give up dancing. And I remember saying to my dad on a few occasions that I'm going to give up dancing. It would just be so much easier for me to give it up than to carry on. And uh, And of course, his advice, because he loved me, was... Well, if you love dancing, then, then don't give up because that's who you are. And if, if that really is who you are, then it really doesn't matter what other people say or think. You've got to do your own thing. Otherwise, you just become a clone of everybody else. And you kind of merge into, into them if you only do what they want you to do rather than what you want to do. But then throughout life, I've experienced never physical bullying to that extent. But I certainly found when I used to go to nightclubs when I was 18, 19, and 20, because of course, in the UK, you can go clubbing from 18. And, uh, and I'd go to clubs, and I'd be dancing freely on the nightclub floor, having a fantastic time. And quite often, then, people would come and ask me out, and they'd say, oh, you, come on outside, you and me, we're going to have it. And, uh, and I wouldn't ever engage with them. But you, you attract attention. And then, as an adult, I made a TV show where I was trying to get some rugby players uh, to dance as part of a TV show, then of course, the rugby players were running a book on on my sexuality, and there was some of that similar tensions that i 'd had i 'd last seen at school that I suddenly saw mm. in the adult world from based on their attitudes and opinions towards me as a because I was a dancer so it's, yeah it 's really interesting wow that that 's really i mean
1: i mean we, we kind of laugh about the outcomes because you succeeded right, and you you beat the bully. But the these must have been incredibly difficult. I mean, it is always really, really difficult, isn't it? In the moment and in the days after those, those those situations. It's a you know, it's very sad. But maybe we now live in a world that's you know a lot better than it used to be um, when it well, comes to supporting not,
2: people's passions. Hmm? I'm not so sure it is really. i, I still got quite a hmm. mailbag of people from parents typically who say, look, my son is going through an experience that you went through um, in in the modern times. And we are superficially more accepting, but there are still very strong attitudes about people, about gender, even though we're much more open about gender Mm -hmm. and about what gender means and the definition of gender, there is still this issue that people think, oh, boys shouldn't be dancing because dancing is for girls and it's not manly and it's not, you know, which is ridiculous because it is all of those things. It is manly and it is masculine and it is strong. Uh, but but there's still that perception there. And very sadly, you know, some people are bullied. And sometimes the, the subtle bullying, people are influenced out of those behaviours. You know, my mm. son, I've got two sons and I've got a 23-year-old son and an eight-year-old son. And our 23-year-old son, when he was, when he danced from the age of eight or nine, and he loved dancing. He belonged to a street and hip-hop class, and he engaged with that really, really well. When he got to 13 and a half, he, he was, again, one of the only boys in this dance group. And up until about the age of 13, 13 and a half, he was in their performing company, which, which went... Sorry, that's going to be... No
1: sorry problem. about this. <laughs> no, it's well, all good. <laughs> oh, bro, this is so funny. I'm gonna I'm
2: gonna turn it off. There we are. It's probably somebody from Microsoft telling me that my computer's about to blow up unless I pay them five thousand pounds. <laughs> That's the normal kind of call I get. Um so hold on, let me make sure this one doesn't ring as well now. Hold on, I'm gonna turn that one off in case it really wasn't Microsoft but somebody else. I guess this is an operational <laughs> hazard. I apologize for that. No so, problem. Obviously, That's you're going amazing. to edit that bit out. But if you don't edit it out, then we can. The audience will understand, I'm sure. <laughs> um, so yes. Yeah, so back to my son, 13. He'd been in a performing company, one of the only boys, having a fantastic time, loving dance, fantastic. And we got a call from the dance school teacher to say, "I'm really sorry, but your son can no longer be in the performing company." And we said, "Why not?" And they said, "Well, all the girls are developing, and he hasn't developed yet through puberty." and he looks a bit small and weedy in comparison to the girls who are all developing in the way that teenage girls are developing, and therefore he can't be in the performing company anymore. And he said, oh, he can still come to class. That would be lovely to have him in class. Now, he'd been in the performing company since the age of seven or eight. And, of course, suddenly at that age, sometimes the prejudice comes from even within the dance world, which says you are the wrong sex, the wrong size, the wrong shape, the wrong everything to be in this performing company. His dancing was, was exactly as it had been six, 60. It was very, really good. But his body shape and size dictated whether he could be in it. And that becomes a problem. If we see the dance world as only being for girls, and I say girls because I mean young girls, and if we only see it for people who are a certain body shape, and if we see it only for people who are a certain sexuality or gender identity, then we are getting it completely wrong. And then, of course, we have anxieties about dancing that come in and people feel terrified of dancing if, they're not, if they don't conform to that idea. And I find that even as an older man dancing, I don't care what people think of me anymore, but I do it because I love it. But a lot of people say to me, I would love to be able to dance. I would love to feel that groove. And when they feel it, they're smiling and they're happy and they love it. But they say, oh, I can't because my society, my culture thinks that I'm the wrong something to do it. Mm. which i think is terrible that's pretty
1: i it, it it it's pretty powerful what you said and and it made me think of what you said originally which is we are dance and i think that even seeing you dance you know it reminds us it, <laughs> if we we're all dance then it just, it just reminds us that, yeah, our potential is who we are uh, as individuals. And so when you dance, it reminds you of who you really are. And that's what probably has got you through many of those challenging moments. And, uh, and maybe we just, we just keep, you keep doing your great work. Um, and, and hopefully that will change, um, just taking it back a little bit to your, um, I hope you don't mind me just covering another chat. And that is a big challenge in itself in, 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 in how the perceptions that you, uh, people, um, you know, give you a hard time around. Um, you might, yeah. So go for it, Josh.
0: Yeah, no, yeah. Just before we go into a different thing, I, I am interested to know, um, you know, you talk about finding yourself in dance and, and, you know, uh, and the support that you got from your dad in that moment, you know, where you're thinking about, should I quit? Should I quit? I'm, you know. I'm interested to know like so uh, yeah when as you were growing up with dance and as you were facing that um were you finding yourself in dance or I mean or was it more of a progressive thing I guess that kind of eventually at some point you realize like it hit you that this is really what I am and was it I guess I don't want to jump to that moment yet but that moment when you walked Mm. across the dance studio uh and you found yourself back in it um because those are really important years formative years right um When you're younger and you're trying to figure out who you really are and 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 i can imagine that dance was important to that but also this there's this interesting idea of just the the vulnerability of dance has always been very interesting to me like you're putting your full self out on display and there's a certain level of confidence in that and i would also just love your take on you know or your interpretation of that i guess is like you know the amount of confidence that it takes to be as vulnerable as you are as a dancer i think and putting yourself out on display if that might be you know, part, of, part of why maybe you also experience some of what you experience in addition to some of those biases uh, within the, the actual field of dancing or the art of
2: dancing. Yeah. Well, Josh, I think that's, uh, that's really important. The, to go back really early, I think there were several experiences of dance when I was very, very young that were important. I'll deal with them individually. So, one, I remember, you know, my parents used to work in a hospital. And this was back in the 1970s. And in the 1970s, in, the, in this hospital, there was a, a social club. So, it was a, a kind of club where all the workers in the hospital could go and they could. there was a snooker table there, and they could eat drinks, but they had entertainment every weekend. So, they'd have a band or they'd have a disco. And I just remember on things like New Year's Eve, on Christmas Eve, and the public holidays, We would all go there as a family, my mum, my dad, my sister and me. And we would all dance together. It was the most natural thing. The four of us would just dance together all through my childhood. And it was this beautiful kind of bonding time. We just kind of felt lovely. Music was there. Everyone was smiling. Everyone had had a wash beforehand. Everyone smelt nice. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It was just (laughs) a lovely space to go and be. And then as a kid, we used to go on holidays to holiday camps. Again, where there'd be multi-generational dancing. Almost like a celebration, people just coming together, grandparents, parents, kids, all age kids would all be in the same space dancing together across a range of different dance styles. So, dancing had always played an important role for me socially and bonding with family members. So, that was always really important. Mm. My parents were not, I must repeat, not showbiz dance mums. They were not that at all. Um, They, you know, it was just that social element. And then when I was at school, even at primary school, when I was seven, eight, nine, there was, we danced, we did country dancing from a really early age. And so all the boys would do sword dancing, we'd have wooden swords where we'd all work together these wooden swords and you'd put them into a shape and lift them up in a star shape. It was amazing. And then we did other country dancing where the boys and girls did things together. It was wonderful. And I was always really quite rubbish at school. The reading and writing stuff at school just didn't work for me at all. And I suppose one of the reasons why I found movement and dance to be so important in those early years and going on was because that was a space where I felt competent. You know, I don't mean good. I don't mean I was brilliant at it. It was just a place where I felt, you know, when there was music playing and I could skip around to the music and I could learn movement-based patterns and I could work with other people in, in that rhythmic patterned way, It felt I felt competent at that. When I had to sit in a class and do reading and writing, I felt incompetent with that. So I felt rubbish. Mm. Now, that was really in from primary school, so six, seven, eight, nine, 10. And the dancing during primary school was wonderful. So I had this very positive experience of dancing. And then I was a disco dancer as well. So I remember oh, we used to go on his holiday camps and I'd disco dance and I'd groove. Oh yeah, I'd be grooving away. And I felt wonderful. I loved it, loved it, loved it. And uh, so when I went to my secondary school, I was again rubbish at reading and writing, but it felt completely natural for me to go into the dance world. And it was only at that point you know, where I'd never experienced before that or never been aware of the prejudice against dancing and it was only at that school where I suddenly discovered that, that people hated the fact that other people dance. I couldn't quite understand it. It took me ages to work out what they hated and why they hated it mm. so much. And um, so that was an important part for me. So I think I'd had all those years of nurturing through movement. Now, of course, one thing I feel very sad about now is that a lot of schools don't include dance in the curriculum anymore. You know, they've cut out all those kind of wonderful things like dancing and some of the social activities that we went to as kids with our parents in the social club, that doesn't exist anymore either. And particularly the last year and a half due to COVID, those things definitely haven't been happening. So I think we're missing some of those early stages. Now, I believe, as I've said, humans are born to dance. I think that movement and natural rhythm um, activates something neurologically, which is it that we are born with this idea of sensory motor coupling, the idea that you know, when we hear music, it activates certain things in our brain and it makes us, it gives us an urge to move. And that gives us an urge then to bond with people socially. It changes the way that we think, it changes our feelings, and it changes us physically. So all those things change when we dance. And I think taking away the opportunities to dance means that when people get to the older age and they start to elect into dance, then it's like a tree with a very shallow root. As soon as they get a wind of bullying or social pressure, then the tree falls over and it can't grow. And uh, I think we need to allow people's groovy roots to grow uh, to to give them that, that sense of who they are. I love that. The
0: groovy roots. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I mean, I would like to think I was born to be able to dance, but I can't, I can't, I yeah, can't hold a beat. Like I can't. Well,
2: you can. Can't. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. You don't. Yeah. Well, you, you might, you,
1: you might I, not, I, but you can. You can. I, I you can yeah, I <laughs> maybe, <laughs> may, maybe. I will say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go for it.
0: <laughs> now, I will say that Spencer, though, has uh, uh, every, every time uh, we've gone to, a, you know, uh, a live musical event. Spencer has a serious break dancing talent. Oh. Like he's he can do a mean wi- windmill. It's it's pretty impressive.
2: Wow. Well, I look forward to seeing that
1: next time I see you.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Well, well, it does make me wonder whether we should have a dance intervention or something in our podcast. <laughs> Maybe that's been done before, but why not do it again? Um, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, Josh says he can't dance, but. We got we got uh, Doctor Dance on this. It, it says everyone can dance. I don't know. Is there anything we should do in this, this podcast um, to kind of bring us the um, the feelings that we need um, and lift our spirits? <laughs> let's
0: let's 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 hold let's hold okay. any any experimental dance. Uh, you know, put me on the spot, put us all on the spot. Until maybe we maybe we tease it for the end. Um, but we, we could do it now, uh, but I, I think we should tease it to the end because I mean, I do want to get into, um, the psychology the neuroscience and dance and how you found all that stuff. But I, I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe we tease that until the end. Is that you, all right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, okay. um,
2: I mean, in many ways, the science comes first. And so all the, the science provides that basis. And often when we're, we're working with people who are anxious about movement, I mean, even that your response just there, I mean, I would never put you on the spot. But that slight sense of panic of, oh no, they're going to get me to yeah. dance. No, 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 please, I don't want to be dancing. No, 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 no. Let, let, let's leave it to the end. Let, let's put it <laughs> off. Let, let's talk about something else first. You know that's a very yeah. real common response a, a, lot, a lot of people have, and I would never try to um, you know, uh, we, we we let's take a few steps before we even think about having you move, and maybe we have you move in, in another episode. You know, maybe yeah, that's yeah. A, Because it is very <laughs> psychological. We don't want to. You know, some people say to me. I've done lots of surveys asking people why they do and don't dance. And, mm-hmm. you know, the people who say they don't dance, they have all kinds of really deeply personal reasons for why they don't dance. One, you know, one, one man, who was an adult, said, I used to love dancing and we were dancing along at school and we we're going across the school hall dancing. And he said, Michael Jackson music came on and I was grooving across the floor and everyone was laughing. And he said, I had no idea what they were laughing at. I was just dancing and I thought something else must have happened. And then when I finished my dance, I realized they were laughing at me. And he said, I haven't danced to this day. And that, you know, that Mm. deep rooted, because dance Mm. is such a fundamental part of the human behavior, when somebody laughs at your fundamental human behavior, you're likely to shut it down and never display it again. And that's why I would never try to humiliate somebody or embarrass them mm. if they felt uncomfortable with dancing. Because what might be fun and pleasurable for somebody else to watch you go, ha-ha, look at oh, how funny is that when he's doing it? If, if, if you're doing that and then someone's laughing at you, then that can, can kill it stone dead for you forever. You know, that pleasure can be gone. So I would never push anybody into doing it. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. I am okay
0: being put on the spot, especially with dance. Okay. I will say, you know... Um, dance for me so i am I'm, I'm not a dancer, no, dancer you know if i'm out at a party i, I will I, I will i will i will try to keep hold hold myself up with spencer and you know try to do try to throw in some moves every once in a while but you know um i am so i'm a filmmaker but i look at dance dance has always been this thing that i i i, I can watch and be completely transported by it's always been this thing that has inspired me artistically more than i think any other art form i'm always so impressed that and what people can do with their body. I mean, it's like, sometimes if I'm, let's say I'm watching a film, I can't pull myself out. I I, I pull myself out of the film to experience, like to to really dissect the art form of it, I guess. And I do that a lot with various different art forms, but it's truly with dance. I am just, I'm in the moment and I'm, I'm just transported by what, 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 what the dancer is doing. And, and, it, it's, it's truly inspiring. And, and I was really excited to actually have this conversation with you too, because I've, I've Spencer and I have both seen your keynotes, which are by far, I think some of the best keynotes I've ever, I've ever seen. And I wanted to know, like, in just regular conversation in your lectures, like what we were going to see, like, how much do you move? How, how much do you groove, you know? And, and you're definitely uh, like, I love that. I think, I think, um, you know, you have this just this great energy that's so fun to watch and, and so fun to just be a part of. So
2: well, it's interesting you talk about that with we get into the neurology of of that. Mm. So you watch dance on screen and you feel captivated by it and you feel intrigued to carry on watching it and you have a connection with it. Well, that mm. speaks in very many ways to the neurological basis of dance and movement. And so we have so our human brain is set up to move. Right. So when I talk about us being born to move, I mean it quite literally. The human brain is set up for movement. And it's set up not only for in, not, not movement like a robot is set up for movement, but it's also set up to integrate lots of sensory information coming into us from our eyes, our ears, from our taste, our smell, our physical body, our proprioception. We've got all of the sensory information coming in from outside of our body into our brain. It goes into this area to do with sensory motor coupling. And that stimulates, gives us an urge to move. Now, we don't have to move on that urge, but it gives us a sense of, oh, ah, we're about to oh, do, do something. Now, what we also know is that when we watch other people dance, then the brain state of that person who's dancing, parts of that can often be reproduced in the, in the observer's brain. So when you're watching somebody dance... Sometimes you have this connection and the areas of their brain which are active during the dance are also active in your brain as you're watching the dance. Some people Mm. call this system the mirror neuron Mm. system. So the mirror neuron system is this idea that you get a mirroring of neural activity as you're watching somebody else. Now that you also gives you that urge to move. It's almost as if that you're moving, you're behaving in a similar way. So when you're watching someone making all these amazing patterns with their bodies, then of course your brain is trying to stimulate or simulate that at the same time as well. And that's why we get such an amazing connection when we watch people dance. Mm. We also know that when we watch dance, dance forms are a really important part of the human mate selection process. So we're, we're evaluating people's movements constantly um, even subconsciously because it's part of a, you know, our genetic drive to find a mate or to find people to connect with and find people to stay away from. So the whole sense of watching movement is a really important biological aspect of the human brain. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I,
1: well, I just, yeah, I love the, that connection and, uh, you say you, you know you enjoy observing josh i think of um, one of our guests we interviewed was uh, dj dolph uh, and he's mm-hmm. a really great dj uh in the us and uh, we were we were at an event where he was djing um and i think i was observing what i liked about dance and i really do love dancing but i don't i wouldn't like to sit in a room where i'm the only one dancing all right, that's that is not really what I want to do necessarily, unless unless everyone's clapping and I don't know, everyone's really getting into it, and other people are going to join in. But I I enjoy watching others. At the corner of my eye, I see what they're doing, and I adopt what they're doing into my dance. And so it's like this constant yeah. energy, like of, of d- making yeah. up my own stuff, but then adapting it with people around me. And I think that that just gives you something that well, you can remember for forever, right? This memorable real memory yeah um so just you going wonderful to ask, research sorry, looking yeah. at that looking mm-hmm.
2: at yeah go for it who be, okay uh, there was some great research looking at, at exactly that that sense of um what how djs control a room and what happens in a room so a dj is controlling it What we do, we did an experiment once where we hid away in the top of a nightclub and we were watching the beginning of the dancing and wanted to see how contagious dancing was. And what we found exactly as you describe, you get people dancing and you're moving their arms in a certain way and that becomes contagious. Somebody else picks up an element of that and then it incorporates it into their own movement pattern. And you can sometimes watch... Like a, like a wave moving across a nightclub dance floor of these movement gestures moving as people catch them and use them and pass them on. And it's all just this kind of shared experience. So nobody is saying, right, everybody, let's do this. Let's do this. It's just catching people's movements, incorporating them into your own, and then somebody else picking those up, adapting them, changing them, moving them and moving them along. And that's why nightclub dancing, is so extraordinary because it feels like you could have a thousand people you know all sharing a heartbeat dancing together even if you don't know any of the other 999 people it's an amazing connective experience
1: Wow well, yeah and
2: I wonder wonder whether that that you're
1: it made me think of even just in in my own life or it could be work work environment but when you when you're doing things if I was forced to kind of do the dance moves that I, you know, that someone else wanted me to do, it'd be, it wouldn't be maybe as contagious, you know, in a big group, I don't know if it would or wouldn't, but when I choose something that really relates to me and, 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 and and I desire to do, um, I think it's more probably my hypothesis would be that others maybe then follow suit. And so, um, it's contagious. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I guess the, the element there that's contagious is the authentic you. you know. And it, this comes into corporate life all the time, doesn't it? Mm. If you've got, you have got a founder of a company who is authentic and they start a company, they found a company and they have their authentic voice, their authentic vision, and they can go forward with, with that amazing vision. Sometimes if you're brought into a company and you have to adopt somebody else's voice, you have to adopt somebody else's movement pattern, you have to adopt somebody else's way of dressing, then you're no longer the authentic you. And then, of course, when you're no longer authentic, then you wouldn't be contagious. Nobody would be interested in copying you because why would Mm. they? It's just a a photocopy of the original, not not even a photocopy or a degraded representation of something that's real. It's not real. And um, we see it really clearly in the human behaviour. So what you're describing there about movement, and I bet the movements you pick up from other people are the authentic movements that those other people are doing mm-hmm. rather than a performative act where they have to do, do a certain behavior? Now, of course, we can all do a certain movement, but we can interpret it in our own way. We can put our own self-authenticity into that movement. So the three of us could do a movement now, and we could all, you know, we could all do exactly the same choreography, but we could all present it in, in a unique, authentic way, because we put something of our character into that. And that's why these dark discos are great. They're dark, it's sweaty, you're closed in, the lights are flashing, you can't quite see what's going on with other people, because you're all the same eye level, you're crunched in. It gives you an opportunity to express yourself in that very real way. And I think in the workplace we need more of that. And one of the I you know sometimes in some workplaces, I worked at one very prestigious university once where nobody was allowed to laugh. You know, it was terrible. <laughs> you all had to be quiet. You'd go in and you'd be quiet. You'd sit in the room. Nobody would say very much to each other. And there was it seemed to be the case that maybe it was such a cerebral place that you were only allowed to be you inside your head, but you certainly weren't allowed to be yourself outwardly and communicate your real self. It was really stifling. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Well. Yeah.
0: Spencer and I have had a lot of really good conversations recently about individuality and voice specifically like even in that and even in that conversation with the DJ interestingly enough I think we were talking about the idea of well he 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 told he was talking about the the process of taking people from a place of let's say familiarity a style of music that people were familiar with and then eventually putting his stamp on it his individuality his voice on it And leading them into into that but starting from a place of familiarity and and i love the way that you related that back to voice and um if there's any way that uh i I would love to then now kind of bridge into this idea of like you know i i I watched your tedx talk and and i hearing you talk about the the neuroscience and how we're how we're thinking about dancing I'd, i'd love to know you know how you found the questions of like how movement changes the way people think, like, when did you become interested in that? And that moment when you started combining, you know, the psychology, the neuroscience and, and the dance, like, what was it? And as far as the moment in your life and and why was that so interesting to you at that time to then kind of, I think venture out away from the the, the physical activity to dance into really truly understanding how people think and, or how it changes the way people think. Okay.
2: So anyone who dances a lot knows that dancing changes the way people think. Right? They, they, everyone, know, everyone who dances knows that. And they, they, they know it changes how you feel. And they know it changes how you relate to other people. It's, it's almost like common knowledge. Well, as a scientist, I knew that common knowledge stuff. But I wanted to see whether it really was true. You know, is it really the case that when you move your body, it changes the way you think? I'd read some books of um, is an improvisation teacher um, at RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, who wrote a book called Improv. And he wrote in the book that when people improvised, then they reported colours being brighter and they reported distances being different. And so he wasn't a scientist, but he was talking about some of these perceptual changes in the human uh, cognition as a function of improvising. So... At the university originally, I set up um, an experiment to test his observation, to see whether it really was the case that when you improvise, it changes the way that you think and perceive the world. And I started off by using the similar kind of improvisation techniques that he was using, which was verbal improvisation games. So, you know, saying things together, which are, are unplanned, they're spontaneous, they're creative. And what I was doing, I was testing I was using verbal improvisation, but I was testing people's verbal ability. You know, so the tests I was doing of, of cognition were verbal tests. And of course, the, the experiment was based on verbal stuff. And I was worried after I did the first you know, 10 experiments that there might be some contamination between the experimental protocol and the experimental outcomes. So I wanted to find a way, a nonverbal way of improvising so I started off thinking about music and musical improvisation, but the problem with musical improvisation is you tend to need some expertise with the musical, you know, realm. You know, with the musical realm to be able to improvise proficiently. So I did some experiments with that, and then I thought, well, I, what I want to do now is look at movement because movement is non-verbal, and and we can and everybody can move and everybody can improvise. So when I very, very, very first started looking at this relationship between movement and improvisation and thinking, I set up an experimental paradigm where I had people in the laboratory moving their bodies in different ways. And I gave them a whole range of different types of problem-solving tasks, different cognitive tasks, visual perception tasks, auditory tasks, a whole set of tasks. And it was there that I found that when you move your body in different ways, it changes the way you think in different types of ways as well. So different types of problem solving become changed. It's not just a case that you move your body in one way and it changes your thinking. But when you move your body in different ways, it changes different types of thinking. so I, I started looking at that, and as soon as I found this stuff, I thought it was fascinating. We could suddenly start to quantify. What everybody who dances knows, when you dance, it changes the way you think. All those people who dance would would report that, but there'd be no science to back that up. And so what we did in our laboratory was to start to test those ideas. And of course, what happened was that other laboratories then around the world would say, oh, well, is this work that Lovett's doing? Is it really reliable? Is it good? And could we reproduce that work? And they could reproduce it. And they were reproducing it and also finding it, which gave us even more confidence. And then, of course, we then started to apply it to people with Parkinson's disease. And we started to apply it outside of the lab, obviously in a medical setting with people with Parkinson's disease, but also then in schools, looking at school children to see whether they would think differently as a function of, of, uh, of engaging with improvisation and moving their bodies in different ways. And what we found in both of those environments is that when people move their bodies, it changes the way they think. And then, of course, we thought, well... Of course, business and commerce and working in working in the business world is all about changing the way that you think. You know, you can, you can set up your thinking, you can set up your organisation, you can align your goals, you can be motivated to, to work towards your goals, and you can be going along quite nicely. And then something comes along, there's a paradigm shift, there's a coronavirus or there's an economic situation or there's a new technology that comes in. Something happens which fundamentally changes your whole work setup. And of course, then you have to change the way you think. But if you keep moving your body in the saying, well, well, it's really hard to change the way you think. As soon as you're set up with all of these your know, cognitive schemas or those ideas in your head, plans to do something, to change those plans is really, really difficult because we are, of course, habitual creatures. And then that's where suddenly bringing in interventions to workplaces to see how people can use movement in the workplace to change the way they're thinking so that they can work out what their new goal is, find a whole new set of motivations to get to that goal and, you know, to to work in different ways. Yeah. So for me, it was all about that journey of, of, as an academic, trying to demonstrate academically, what is the truth of dance and what is the myth of dance? Because, of course, some of the problem with folklore is that people go, oh, yeah, dance is amazing. Dance can do this, this, and this. And some of the things they say you know, may not be, may not be backed up by science. And we, I want, I, as a scientist, I want to know, well, what is it about dance? And why do some aspects of moving my body do this? And what doesn't it do? So, for instance, am I talking too much? Should I, should I take a no, breath? No, this is great. No. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. So, you know, people always say that dancing is really good for people, which it is really great for people. And um, it's good for people's self-esteem. But it's not a simple relationship as the more you dance, the higher your self-esteem will be. Because we know that people who dance a lot, so people who are on vocational training schemes, people who, you know, do certain types of dance, have got really low self-esteem. And low self-esteem is important because low self-esteem is related to eating disorders, self-harm and depression. So if we think that there are some group of people who are dancing a lot and their self-esteem takes a dive and they're more likely then to experience those three things of eating disorders, self-esteem and depression, then that's a really important thing we need to understand. So you know, how much dancing is good for people? You know, Where is it good? Good, good. It's great, 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 great. And it gets to this tipping point where when you do it to a certain point, then it starts to have a detrimental effect on you. And as a scientist, I wanted to understand that. And I wanted to understand also things like, we know that dance is good for people's health and well-being, but exactly what health conditions is it good for? How much dance do we need to be good for someone's health and well-being? What type of dance? Is every type of dance really good for people or are there different types of dance that activate different things? So as a scientist, I was really motivated by those, by those kind of questions. To find out you know not just is it good for you but when is it good and when is it not good where where is that that balanced tip yeah,
0: yeah I love that and when you say um, when you say it change so it changes the way people think it, 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 is it also I guess uh, trying to get trying to understand it, it's it's really helping people. Um, embrace the change in how you think i guess like there's there's I can is that kind of what it is it's like um so in as you mentioned your your example of covid and you know of course you're being put into a uh it, it's helping you embrace the change i guess it, it's and um, it's not necessarily changing it in a specific way that if you dance you will start to think this way other than maybe you are embracing change more regularly is that no, d-
2: am I, am i understanding that right no the let, let's take in a situation where Someone is anxious, okay? And the work we've done is looking at a lot... Well, some, some of the work we've done is looked at problem-solving. And what we know is that when people move their body in different ways, they become more proficient problem-solvers. So normally, if mm-hmm. I was to you know, set up a situation where I gave you a, a, a test of your divergent thinking, so your creative problem-solving tasks... You'd have a certain ability to create, you know, to come up with a certain number of solutions to a problem, whether it's a real-world problem or an artificial problem. But you need there's a certain number of steps you might come up with, certain number of solutions, but your solution set will be quite limited, right? Just normal. What we know is that when we get people dancing and moving in an improvised way, then the, the set of potential solutions gets much larger. So suddenly, people can think, you know, in a more divergent way they're able to think about more solutions to problems. So their thinking becomes expanded in, in that way. Now, think about how you can apply that either to your own well-being. So let's imagine you're an anxious person. You, you ruminate a lot and you catastrophize a lot. You might have a certain set of solutions in your head and certain examples of how you can get out of that. And you think, well, I can, I'll only be happy if I earn loads of money or I'll only be happy if somebody loves me or only be happy if I can find a new job, right? You've got, got that. So your solution space is quite limited. And we know that there, there are some psychological therapies which are based on the idea of expanding your psychological solution set. And this is what movement gives you. It broadens your solution set out. So you can suddenly think of more solutions, you know, other ways of, of being less anxious or other ways of being less depressed. Of course, in a business world, this might be, okay, we're we're going to end lockdown soon. All the workforce have been working like this for the last year. Um, Here's how we used to work a year ago before it. What do we do? Is is my solution set simply to say, well, let's bring everybody back into the office and carry on working exactly as we were a year ago? Well, that's probably not really going to work because all the workers, their mindsets have shifted over the last year. They've been working from home and different things. So, what organizations need to do is to come up with a new solution set, and their solution set needs to be as broad as possible. Now, if we put people in a room and say, I oh, just sit there and come up with some solutions, their solution set will be of a certain size. What we know from the science mm-hmm. is if we get people moving as they're making those solutions, as they're thinking about the solutions, it might be walking around the room, and so it hasn't got to be dancing. But if we get people moving, then suddenly their solution sets get larger and larger and larger. And then, of course, if you've got a room full of bright people whose solution sets are getting larger, then it gives them more to discuss in terms of, okay, how many other solutions are there to this new reality post-COVID, for instance? You know, the way that people are buying services, the way that people are providing services, the way that teams work together now that they're so used to working from home. How many days a week should they be back in the office? You know, all of that, that thing where how do we manage people? What's all of those different solution sets can be broadened, and that then gives people a solution. So, that is what movement does to people, you know, for instance, in that, in that, in the way that people think and solve problems, and that's how it can be used and applied. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that.
0: And I feel like it's more important than hope, maybe what people realize. Like, I, I think that's so fascinating that, I mean, there, there are a lot of, so, I, I'm sure we've all encountered people who say, you know, well, I'm not creative. But I think what what I'm understanding from what you just said is, you can increase, let's say, your creative problem solving, your divergent thinking, your openness to new ideas, various different things through, through not just you know, so through, through movement and through dance, and yeah. and 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 it's a I think it's interesting because it's a real mindset shift, you know. I and I think for people who might say that maybe I'm not creative or I I really feel like kind of what you just explained is a, is a really strong message for everybody um, who might kind of put that limit on themselves maybe too Mm -hmm. early, you know, or um, that's, that's actually really interesting. Would you also say that it's, um, I mean, cause you, you relate, you talk about improv and dance and would you, I I mean, yeah, I was going to say, do you find that as well with just, let's say other art forms in general, or does it specifically, I mean, maybe you haven't looked into that specifically, but other art forms in general beyond, let's say, um, you know, rather than
2: dance, that isn't just movement or, yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the whole essence of the thing with, let's move away from the term dance because dance is, has okay. so many connotations to it. I, I, I'm a specialist in movement. So we're thinking about movement and the way movement. we can u- use okay. movement. And because movement is a natural activity and the brain is set up for it, then then we get these benefits. With other innate activities, we might get similar benefits in certain ways, depending on the the, the makeup of them. But it's interesting when we talk about, you know, we we spoke earlier on about whether you or somebody else is a dancer or whether you do or don't dance. Mm. And then now you're talking about people who either see themselves as creative or not creative. Well, it's certainly the case that there are some people who work in the creative industries who might define themselves as a creative. But everyone who has to manage a home budget, you know, working out, okay, I earn this amount of money per month, my rent is this amount, my food bill comes to this, you know, how do I manage this budget? You know, that's a creative activity. Everyone is creative. We all have to be creative yeah. in our activities of daily living. We all have to be creative with navigating our friendship circles, you know, working out who are we going to bond with most closely? Who are we going to invest that time in? All of the, these things are everyday creative activities. And, of course, these are the kind of activities that people get stuck on. You know, They spend more than they earn every month. They don't quite mm. work out. They invest their time in, in some people but not other people, and they, they wonder why their relationships are all skewed and not working. Uh, these are the kind of things yeah. that we can help people improve by opening up their creative thinking abilities. Everyone has that ability to think creatively, not just the professional creatives. Mm. Yeah, it's good stuff. I love that.
1: um, So the question is, uh, how often should we be dancing or moving? Uh, You can probably see me on my treadmill desk. I've used a treadmill desk for like, I don't know how long, 10 years. but it it, and and moving on a treadmill listening to music and even trying to get a few dance moves in there on a daily basis is super important to me (laughs) but how how frequent do you think people should be moving or you know getting those benefits
2: that you talk about well really we shouldn't be sitting down for more than 40 minutes at a time so five minutes in every 45 minutes we should be moving our bodies It's standing Mm. up moving around um and what we want to aim for, so you know, just at a basic movement level, five minutes in every 40 minutes, we should be moving. What you're doing on a, on a treadmill desk is fantastic. You're move, moving a lot. Of course, we then need to move up. The World Health Organization argue that we should be doing between 150 and 300 minutes of, of moderate movement a week. Uh, so that's th- that's the target we should all be aiming for. And again, so that's about... You know, forty-five minutes a day, really—that we should, we should be getting our heart rate pumping due to the movement we're doing. Mm-hmm. But then, you see, it's not just about the movement. We need to be moving our whole bodies in different ways. You know, it's very easy if you're on a, on a treadmill. I'm delighted to hear that when you're on a treadmill, you might groove a little bit as well and get some kind of groove going going with the movement. That's fantastic because then you're moving different parts of your body and keeping that that well juiced up. But not my arms, right? Yeah. Well, why not? Can you not? Can you can you not? Probably with your probably arms? Should. Yeah, yeah,
1: I should do more of that, yeah.
2: Absolutely. It,
1: my, my hand's usually on my mouse, but you're absolutely oh, okay. right. From time to time, I should be, you know, I try to twit, turn around, do a little bit of a spin, uh, but yeah. I probably do need to do more with my hands. But yeah.
2: Yeah, get, get that going. Get some hands up in the air. <laughs> you know, it could be you could be typing, type, 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 type. And yeah, you've got that finish, and walking, and then back to type, 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 type. So there's no reason why you can't. But what's really interesting is we get, um, it's really interesting that there, there's, there's different types of movement and functional movements are the absolute killer. You know, in any job or any society we live in, we have functional movements and these functional movements are the movements you have to do to the minimum movements you have to do to live your life or to move around or to complete the task you're trying to do. So mm. that's just the functional movements. And Everything on top of that is this kind of creative movement, which is a really exciting movement. It's the extra movements you do that are not required for the task that you're doing. Now, why is this so important? Well, we've known this is important in occupational settings for over 300 years. There was a guy called Ramat um, who was this amazing, he was the father of occupational medicine, and he was a, a medical doctor, and he observed that there were the maladies associated with occupational posture and occupational movement. And he did a lots of study of people who were doing manual jobs, bookkeeping jobs, um, and he he kept a record of the physical stress associated with that job and also the psychological stress of making errors, the psychological stress of displeasing your boss. I mean, this was 300 years ago he did all of this stuff. And what he found was that when people move their bodies in certain ways, repeatedly over and over and over again it led to physical problems in the body and it also led to some psychological problems too so this was 300 years ago he was advocating for a range of different movements well it wasn't so much that he was just talking about the problem that existed but what we know is that when we get people breaking away from their very functional movements which as i say are just the core movements sufficient to do the task then they, their their health and well-being is improved now why is this so important if you imagine, I'm not suggesting that you suddenly don't do your job, but if you find other ways of moving the other parts of your bodies while you're doing your job, then of course it has an amazing impact on you. So if your job is to sit with a headset on all day and to make phone calls or to listen or to receive phone calls, there are lots of bits of your body that you could be moving, which don't affect your ability to take that call. You know, you could still take the call and move, move other bits of your body. And if your job is to is to serve tea on an aeroplane pushing a trolley down the aisle. There's a whole set of other movements you could do which are wonderful and creative. Uh, Now, what we need as a society to do is to... because then people say, well, I feel self-conscious. I feel a bit of an idiot if I have to do a movement. That's a move in a way that isn't consistent with the thing I'm trying to achieve. We need Mm -hmm. to break that away. We need to change organisations so that we get more free movement within an organisation If you're walking to the photocopier, you know, why can't you step, step, step will change, do a bit of strut, wiggle your hips, roll your shoulders? Why can't you do that? Well, people don't like to see that. Well, who cares what people like to see? If it's good for your mind and your body and good for the organization, then let's have a wider range of movements coming in.
1: Yeah, man, I I love that concept. And it, it reminds me of something I was listening to the other day around just Taking anything you already do today that's ordinary, you know, things that just have to be done, but just add extra things to that same experience and make it, and and you're actually taking it up a level. So, yeah, you're still getting the job done, but you're opening up your mind to enjoying it more or receiving more from it. Um, And I like, I, I think my conclusion for what you said is that you can also get yourself out of. I think of kind of the drama triangle of, 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 of life where sometimes you're just in the thick of something and you're stressed and you can't see the solution. But that the, the, the changing it up and using movement to do that uh, can actually free your mind up and, and actually remind yourself, help you be more self-aware that um, you can think differently um, and, and kind of, yeah, open yeah.
2: your mind up is what I got from that. Um, and the gateway drug to that is we all know if you've been sat working too long getting up and going for a walk is good for you right nobody would argue mm. that that isn't good for you and it's good for your body and your mind so just think what you could, what else you could achieve if you do something more than just walking if you move different yeah. parts of your body and you can start slowly and start to build those up and experiment with it whoa, well, you get a huge impact
1: yeah do you know what? where my mind goes with this is um, an old memory actually so i was uh, in south africa um, the day that Nelson Mandela was became president, and I live, I was there for a couple of years. But I was, I was doing some service in a provincial hospital. Um, really poor conditions, very terrible conditions. But uh, you can imagine they were celebrating the nurses, the doctors, um, and the patients. But ultimately, they they still had to do their job. <laughs> but they would, they have a great way, a, a kind of a more of a community feel uh, to their dancing in in, in, in Zulu, uh, the Zulus in South Africa, and they would dance collectively. there was probably fifty staff members and us dancing in this kind of tribal kind of community dance all the way down the ch- the hospital corridors to to to, to go to the, your next job <laughs> to go do the next you know serve yeah. the next patient, but they would do it they did it together, and it was all day long. It was a beautiful memory. Uh, But yeah, that's where my mind goes with that one. Um, Wow. Wow. Well, are you okay for just a few more minutes, or yeah, (laughs) Uh,
2: yeah? A couple minutes. Yep,
1: yep. I mean, we might want to get still get to this intervention. I don't know. Maybe it's just for me, Uh, or or something practical you can give in the way of something that anyone can do on a morning. Um, But let me. I I just want to take you. I just want to ask you about. The one thing that it really, really resonates with me, and I just want to make sure our listeners know this, is that you know you you are incredibly um, inspiring and, and smart, um, and you've you know academically you, you've done all these great things. Um, it relates to me your story though uh, quite significantly because I remember uh, I have a twin sister. I, I didn't do any talking until I was five, so my sister did all the talking. Um, it meant that I was behind on everything pretty much like right? reading, writing, those things were more difficult. And, and, and I, and I, and I was so well surprised, uh, and shocked to just hear anyone that is, is so inspiring like you, you've also faced those challenges, right? With, um, I think you said in your twenties, maybe 23, uh, you hadn't yet, re- you know, learned to read in, proficiently, uh, and and I think that I, I'd love to know a little bit more about how you overcame that challenge. But I think of, um, I'm not sure if it was a train journey or it was a book that you you decided to, you know, I'm going to learn. If I can learn thousands of dance moves effortlessly, how can I do the same thing for reading? Um, and then I think you noticed, was it patterns in the story, a patterns of emotion in the story? Um, I don't know, like what, What? can you tell us a bit of, about that and and the importance of 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 noticing that and maybe even the importance of the the weakness um or or challenge gap you had to 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 get you to where
2: you are now yeah it was um so at school I was rubbish at school when when you can't read and write properly then you fail everything and because in school everything is assessed or it was then by reading and writing, you have to learn everything by reading and writing and you're assessed by your reading and writing of that material. Then I was rubbish and I failed everything. And when you fail over and over and over and over again, and you even get certificates in failure at the end, you get a certificate that says F fail on it. You literally become a certified failure. And when it's school teachers who are failing you, um, then you take it on board, you know, it becomes part of who you are, you're you know, a failure. And I was very lucky that I could dance because dancing, I felt completely really different when I danced, I felt competent, I felt I had good relationships, I, everything changed when I danced. So I went off and trained as a professional dancer, then worked in professional theatre. And it was when I was working in professional theatre, when you fail everything, you 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 self-define as being stupid and And it's awful when people self-define as stupid and incapable because you then start to live up to that or live down to that. And when I was in one show, the musicians and the actors, I always thought they were really clever. I thought musicians are really clever, they're really smart. Actors are really clever, they're really intelligent. And um, we were in this show in London and in the rehearsal phase, the beginning of that, we all had to come in together and the musicians had their musical score and they had a musical director, and for the first two weeks of the rehearsal, they were just reading their score, and on the opening night, they'd have a conductor there, and they could still have their score in front of them, and they played their notes, and the conductor kept them in time, and I thought they were really clever, and then the actors did something a bit harder. They came in with their their scripts, and they came with their scripts, and they would read their scripts, and eventually, they'd come off book, where they'd memorize their script, and on the opening night, if they still forgot their script, there was somebody in prompt corner in the backstage who would shout out their line to them. And they go, oh, yeah, and they'd carry on. But as dancers, we had to just learn it. We just we couldn't write it down. We didn't, nobody gave us a book with it written in. A choreographer would just stand there and say, we're going to do this, 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 and this. And they would demonstrate a two-hour show to us that we would just remember and we would dance it. And there's nobody keeping us in time. And there's nobody telling us what the next step is if we forget it. And if you try to do either of those two things with music or with the words, let's imagine the director came out and they just read the whole of Romeo and Juliet, the script, to the actors and said, you've got to remember this. You can't just remember the, your words. It would take them a long time to learn how to do that. They wouldn't be able to do it ultimately. And the same with the musicians. But dancers can do it. And it was, there was a moment, a moment where I thought, do you know what? I can't be stupid. If I'm capable of doing all of that, then I can't be a failed idiot. And at that moment, of course everybody everything else says you are stupid everybody, you know everything says, well, no, but you are stupid, you are I just go, no no no, no, but I'm not I'm not I'm just not I'm not if I could do that then I can't be stupid. And so I decided then to learn to read. but the problem when you learn to read as an older person is that the words trip you up constantly. there are words. are meant to sound the same, but they look different on the page. So there, there, and there. You think, well, how do I sound up these different words? How do I spell them? How do I write them? There are confusions in the language constantly. The English language is there to trip people up. It's a semi-regular language. The regular part allows you to have rules. So I before E, except after C. And in about 20 other you know, alternatives as well. The rules don't stand up. The rules do not apply. But teachers are teaching you the rule as they apply to the regular part of the language. But the language isn't regular, it's semi-regular, which means part of it, you have to work out for yourself. It's, oh, the language is crazy when you look at it. So I thought maybe the language is stupid and I'm not stupid. Maybe I'm quite bright, but the language is, is, is broken. And when you switch your mindset to that, you can then go, oh, okay then. So what I need to do is to work out the puzzle in here and work out how stupid this language is. Because I do have the intent. If I'm capable of learning all of this dance, I must be capable of breaking down this language and learning this language. So I started to learn to read. And of course, as soon as you pick up a book as an adult, then all the people who know you as being stupid go, why are you reading a book? Because you're really stupid. You know, you should be reading. You will be able to understand that. So you have to overcome lots of those things. When I started to break down the language, the th- struggle I had with the language was language from the cognitive perspective, the spelling, the grammar. You know, I could read the cat sat on the mat. I could read that, right? And I could understand where the cat was sitting and what he was sitting on. What I couldn't understand was, you know, the car that was parked next to the bank that was robbed yesterday by three men wearing balaclavas was blue. By the time I got to the end of that sentence, I'd have no clue what was blue. The sentence just didn't make sense to me. I couldn't couldn't pass it. So these are the kind of cognitive aspects of the language. And I struggled with the cognitive elements of the language. So I thought, well, how do I learn dances? When I learn movement patterns, I don't just learn movement patterns by thinking about the really technical aspect of the dance. It's not just a purely cognitive exercise. I learn it in terms of the relationships and about the qualities of the movement and about the emotions in the movement, about the motivations behind the movements, about how it all comes together. So what I then did was to think, okay, to help me overcome this reading difficulty, I'm going to try to overcome the cognitive but I'm going to put into the language all of those things, the relationships, the meaning, the rhythm, the timing. So I could read poetry and poetry was great because it would sometimes have a rhythm. And sometimes the last word in the line would give me a clue as to how to say the next word at the end of the next line. It would give me a hook into that. There'd be some rhythm on that. You know, reading the whole de-dum, 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 dum dum De-dum, 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 de-dum. Reading you know, Shakespeare's iambic pentameter was wonderful. That whole meter thing kind of gets you grooving. I remember reading some Walt Whitman poetry. And, and there's the rhythm in the poetry that makes you want to go, oh, ba and dance it almost. You feel the rhythm. And so then I, I, did, I started reading some Freud. And so I went to Freud's house in London, his old house, to, to go to the Freud Museum to understand more about Freud. And by understanding something about Freud, when I went back to the language, I could read it. I started to get an emotional response to reading. So I read Anna Karenina by Tolstoy. And I fell in love with Kitty, one of the characters in the book. Oh, my word. The first time I fell in love with a written character, it was a revelation. I had all the the normal aspects of being in love. I, I I was reading the pages. I read really, really slowly. And if I knew that she'd be on the next page, I'd start to get dry-mouthed. Start to, my heart would flutter, and I missed her. But, of course, it was unrequited love. She didn't love me. I loved her. And uh, I was heartbroken. Oh, I won't, tell, I won't spoil the story for you, but I, it, it was beautiful. Oh. I had an emotional relationship with her. And so when you try to get the social element of, of reading and the characters and the writers and the emotional aspect of, of the reading, mix it with the cognitive, but also have a physical element to it. So having an aspect of reading where there's a rhythm and some movement, and you can move with the words, you know, saying the words, reading the words, feeling the da 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 da. And then when you put all those together, then I was using dance. I was using all the things that I use in dance to help me learn really, you know, two hours worth of choreography, and I applied those to reading. And suddenly, it just blossomed. The written word just was like a field, which became a field of wildflowers. It was beautiful. And when I got to that point with reading, I knew that's when I then did a a degree and then a master's and then a doctorate. And the, the written word, even though I hate, I hate the irregularity of the language and it trips me up and I despise it for that. But for what it gives me in terms of the relationships and the emotional response and a way of communicating something, I love that element of it. So that's how I managed to use dance to help me unlock reading. Wow. Yeah, that that's that's
1: beautiful. I mean, you basically found the music in in the story and finding the meaning in it. I mean, that's what everything our life should be about, shouldn't it? Like trying to find through all the clutter, um, And the challenge is trying to find the things that are really um yeah, music
2: to our ears. Um before I ask you, so yeah. One more thing. It's the heartbeat. As you were saying that, Mm. I thought it's the heartbeat. That's what we're trying to find. And if we find that heartbeat in in all those areas of our lives, then it transforms it from being like computer code, ones and zeros, to being something that's alive.
1: Well, I, I know we want to get to a quick uh, dance intervention. Uh, we, I want to know about that picture on the wall. But uh, Josh, do you have anything else around? Um, I know that you're a fil- you know you film and a writer. Um, does that resonate with you? The I guess that's what you're trying to do, right? Bring in the feeling and the meaning, especially the emotion for everyone. Um, oh, you're a mute maybe sorry about that yeah
0: no I kind of just want to sit in that moment for Mm. a little while like I I loved everything that you just you just talked about I loved hearing your perspective on because you had such a unique experience getting into the language and getting into the reading and 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 it was it was Spencer said beautiful and it was beautiful and if we had if we had a bunch of time I would really want to dive into I think That idea of pattern from a story perspective i'm i'm very fascinated and 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 very interested in the patterns of let's say the structure of story uh the emotion of story and the pattern with human behavior you know how we and human experience you know and, and and how stories found their structures and how they found their you could say patterns and i'm very fascinated with that and and everything that you just said the emotional patterns to it i think is is very interesting but I think we are we are about hitting time but yeah I just kind of want to sit in that moment for a little while cuz it was amazing and beautiful and I I, I
1: thank you for sharing maybe, that. Maybe maybe a part 2 uh Peter uh, another yeah. another yeah. another day. Um thank you so much. Um could you tell us about
2: the picture behind this? cuz I've been looking at it the whole time and thinking what is that? Ah, <laughs> oh, well so that one there uh, behind me is I I made a show in the states in 2016 and um we were using movement and creative arts to help people overcome some of their difficulties and problems. And with one family, for members of the family, we use dance, we use singing, we use painting. And for, for one young woman, we were using painting as a way of her expressing herself. And so we went in, we're in California, went into this art shop and, um, and she was playing with colors and playing with ideas. And then the art shop owner, uh, I had a conversation with her. We're talking about how we express emotions through painting. And she said, oh, look, sure. Hey, if I, if I, was gonna, I said, what would it be like if you drew somebody who, who was, you know, a positive face? And so she started drawing this drawing and colouring it with, a, you know, it's like, a, it's like the, the theatrical happy and sad masks. And she was creating it using colours to demonstrate to the person we we're working with how they could use colour to represent different emotional states. And she painted that for me. And she didn't know she was painting it for me at the time. She was just scribbling. And she painted that in about, well, 15 minutes. It just kind of went down. It came out of her onto the page. And, uh, and at the end, uh, she gave it to me. And so she signed it and gave it to me. And, uh, and the, the story was, of course, that was fine. So she said, oh, here we are. You can have this. I said, thank you very much. And then the production team who were making the show, they wanted to keep it. And they kept saying, "Oh, we'll put it in our vehicle over here," and I was going, "Yeah, yeah, yeah but I need it back from there because I want it in my vehicle to take it home back to." And, they, and honestly, we spent about three weeks tussling with this picture, and they wanted to keep it, but it was given to me. <laughs> so it was honestly, it was like a, uh, it was like a real challenge for me to get this trophy from them at the end and actually ship it back to England, and. Uh, but I love it. It reminds me, I've got it on the wall there, because it reminds me of, of how we use creativity to express ourselves, either through movement or through our voice or through painting. And, um, and it, so it reminds me of that experience of making the TV show in the States. Amazing.
1: Well, that's fantastic. So do we have time for an intervention? I don't know. Like, is there something you can give us um, to do and maybe demonstrate it to us or for us for, for a couple of minutes? Well,
2: okay. Now, because of the way I'm wired up at the moment, I can't stand (laughs) because I've got wires attached to me. So I'll I'll give you a a static. um, Here we are. Here's a complete beginner's guide to finding your groove. So lots of people say they don't dance and don't move because they feel intimidated by that. And as soon as they feel intimidated, their bodies become really tense. They get this physical armor over their body and they find it really hard to move and groove. So one of the first things I do with people is to help them find that groove and my the doctor dance find your groove exercise is this what i encourage people to do is if let's go right back to basics we get people laying on a bed or on the sofa or somewhere completely on their own put some headphones in and the idea is to listen to a piece of music they really enjoy right so just listen to that piece of music and then what i want them to do is within that music is to find the beat of the music and then i want them to embody that beat so what they do is find a muscle group somewhere inside their body, something completely unseen, and they twitch that part of their body in time with that beat that they found, the strong beat. And then what I want them to do after that, now this could go on for as long as they needed to, then they I want them to move that beat around their body so they might find the beat in their tummy in their lower abdomen, in their buttocks, in their thighs, in their calves, in their their toes. And they move that beat all around and around their body. So they start to feel that groove. And then, then they really are feeling the groove. That's exactly what groove is. And then I want them to make that slightly bigger. So rather than just twitch a muscle, I want them to move a finger or to move an extremity, like their head or their shoulder, on that beat. And then to sit up on the side of the bed or the sofa, feet on the floor, and then make it slightly bigger again. And then eventually stand up and use that groove over your body. And then suddenly making it slightly bigger. Now, the next thing to do is to find another beat in the music, a different beat. And see, so now I've got two beats, two grooves going on. And try to embody the different grooves in different parts of your body. Then go to a mirror, if you have one, and dance with yourself. Once you're free and confident, your muscles are relaxed, you've found your groove... Find a mirror and dance with yourself. Get that groove on and make it a little bit bigger again. So making the movements bigger and stronger. And, the, and again, move the groove all over your body so that you feel it. We know that dance is a full brain workout as well as being a full body workout. So get it moving all the way down you. And then eventually, this might be several days later. So you don't dance for several days, but several days later, you might then bring somebody else into your private space and dance with them. And then once you're confident dancing with yourself, moving, finding the groove, finding a groove with another person, then take the groove outside to somewhere else. So this is my my technique for helping people find their groove. And it's particularly for those people who go, I don't dance. I can't dance. I've got two left feet. I can't, ah, and their body's tense up. It's get get rid of the tension. Let the groove in. Once the groove is inside your body, oh, it does amazing things.
1: Brilliant. Amazing. And, and a great, a great kind of tactic for even if you don't, if you feel down or you don't feel like dancing, just go through that cycle, right? Go through that process. Yeah. Amazing. Well, um, maybe we should at some point have our partner Kiln pay you to come and do a or a virtual even a dance session with all of all of their uh, locations. We'll we'll have to have that conversation, but it would be amazing to to bring this to life um, and just to feel that. That energy that you're you're talking about, um, I'm excited about that. Um, how can people contact you? And uh, yeah,
2: let us let, let our listeners know. Okay, so my website is peterlovett.com, and Peter Lovett is P-E-T-E-R, and then L-O-V for Victor, A for Alpha, T-T dot com. Nice, I could just about see that dance. It's amazing. <laughs> um,
1: uh, Josh, anything to uh, anything to finish off? Uh, yeah, if,
0: yeah. So if you could also just real quick, just, uh, so you've written a couple of books as well. Um, tell our audience
2: about those books and we'll, yeah. Okay. I'm looking if they, just in case they want to oh, go lovely. And check That'd them out. That'd be very nice. Um, yes, I've written two books. Um, hold on. let can I, Oh, here it is. No, that's no, not that. Hold on. Hold on. Oh, no, it's on Spencer's phone right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's been listening. Yeah. Hold on. I'm moving away from the audience. Hold on. Here we go. Right. So, um, yes. if you're, if you're in England, you can read the dance cure which is there. If you're in the US of A, you can read The Dance Cure, published by HarperCollins, One, which is right right there, The Dance Cure. Uh, I've also written a book called Dance Psychology. So if you want more of the academic stuff, go to Dance Psychology by Dr. Peter Lovett. And if you want something, a nice read, uh, every, and everybody read, then The Dance Cure, the surprising science to being smarter, stronger, happier. And you will, you will. Amazing, and the
1: audio ver- wow. the audio version is great as well. And so, uh, you know, while you're walking, doing things in your house, I I, I, uh, I recommend that one as well. Amazing. Well, uh, Dr. Peter Lovett, thank you so much for being a part of this. Uh, we'll post a few clips of um, of you d- you dancing on the stage at X Four. Uh, I think I actually had my daughter with me. She was video me dancing following your instructions, and so I think we we'll might Maybe maybe we'll uh, share some of those as well. And maybe even do a competition, Josh. What do you think? A competition, a giveaway of some kind uh, to, to those that could post their uh, grooviest move uh, on on social media. We'll see.
2: All right. Thank you, Dr. Peter Lovett. We'll thank you. Well, thank you for having me on the show. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you.
1: Well, thanks for hanging out with us. We, we really hope you enjoyed today's episode of the S.W.E.L.L. podcast please be sure to like and subscribe. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review on Apple and get in on the conversation as well on all the major socials at The Swell Pod. We will see you next time.